Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Highline Podcast. Today, we're going to be breaking down the e-cigarette and vaping market. Vapes have become a lot more prominent recently with almost every single person smoking them on a night out after they've had a few drinks. Today, we're going to take a look at how the vaping and e-cigarette industry has gotten so big, how vapes were able to come to market as a new invention. We're also going to take a look at how Government regulation to an industry can create a lot of opportunities for us by weakening the power of the companies in that industry. By the end of this episode, we're going to understand how the pioneer of a market doesn't necessarily always become the big winner. We're going to understand the maxim of what gets banished by the old gets reinvented by the new, and that gives us a lens to understand human nature. And lastly, we're also going to be able to understand how to spot products that are working in overseas markets and how we can take that product and deploy it in our own country and likely experience the same success with good execution. From a business perspective, I don't think this market is worth us looking at in terms of creating new e-cigarette products. That is due to the unethical nature of creating e-cigarette products that are bad for our consumers' health and are addictive. However, there is some very good learnings about the companies that created this industry. And today, we're going to take a look at the story of Juul. Juul faced a meteoric rise. At one point, it had 76% market share of the US vaping market. And it is essentially crashed and burned. And there are questions about whether Juul can keep operating. Then we're going to take a look at the Chinese company called Relix. The Relix story illustrates how Some ideas that work very well in other countries can also work well in our country. But before we get into the founding story of Jewel and Relics, I want to start off by chatting about a slightly obscure topic, which is what happens when the government gets involved in an industry that they think is a bad idea. This is very topical at the moment. Bill Gurley, who is a famous venture capitalist from the firm Benchmark, did a speech at the All In Summit called 2,851 miles. What he explains in that speech is the introduction of regulation to an industry benefits the incumbent and decreases innovation in the industry. This is referred to as regulatory capture. The tobacco industry is almost a perfect example of this occurring. Tobacco is a very old industry. It's been around since the 1700s. Some of the companies which are still operating today were founded in the 1800s. Once the government started to get involved in the industry, they were worried about its impact to citizens. They started to introduce things such as plain pack warnings, banning on marketing and advertising, increasing the cost of cigarettes through taxation. This started in the 1970s. If you do a chart of the tobacco industry before the government got involved, what you'll find is it wasn't a particularly strong performing market from a shareholder's perspective. The companies didn't make a lot of money. There was a lot of competition. There was also a lot of innovation. And then as the government got involved and slowly started to introduce regulation to the industry and increase the cost of operating, the smaller companies could no longer be in existence and they had to sell. The larger companies bought these assets for an absolute steal. They rolled them into their existing operation, which lowered their cost of goods, increasing their profit margin. And you'll find that the larger companies profited massively from the introduction of these laws. Now, I want you to think about this. If you wanted to start a new tobacco business today, you literally could not do it. 
You can't advertise. You can't do any marketing. You have to use plain pack warnings. You can't even display your product on the shelf so that people can see it. So how are you going to get new customers? It's absolutely impossible. Now, there is some really good learnings here for us because first of all, it's very counterintuitive. When you first think about the government entering an industry, you think, oh, this is bad for innovation, which is correct. But it's very good for investing because it essentially eliminates all of the competition so that the bigger companies now can make a lot more money because they're never ever going to face a new competitor. Point number two is we need to be thinking about where the government is intervening in markets today because you'll find that you were not able to start a vaping product in the 1970s. The tobacco companies had too much power. However, as their power got weakened by the government, there became opportunities to start new categories within this market. To illustrate my point, let's start off with the history of vaping. In the peak of the tobacco company's power, which was about the 1960s, they were selling about 523 billion cigarettes alone in the US. That is a lot of darts. That is also a lot of money. Now, the first e-cigarette was created in 1927 as a vaporizer to smoke medicinal compounds. And you don't get any innovation in the space until the 1980s, where physician Norman Jacobson came up with an e-cigarette, brought it to market, but got absolutely destroyed by the competition. The tobacco companies made it extremely hard for him to operate and bullied him out of existence. The tobacco regulation started in the early 1970s, and it wasn't until 2003 that you see the next e-cigarette device pop up. And that is where Chinese pharmacist Hon Lick developed an e-cigarette, which we would call the modern e-cigarette today, which had a lithium-ion battery, an atomizer, and a cartridge that could contain nicotine or non-nicotine solution. That product slowly started to make its way west. First e-cigarettes appeared on European soil in about 2006. The reason why I wanted to explain this is this shows you how important market timing is. And the hard thing about market timing is there's no good frameworks out there to recognize what good market timing looks like. But the benefit that you and me have in studying these markets, we now have a very good example of what good timing looks like. Because if you think about it, during the 1970s, if you were to able to create a vape, you wouldn't have ever been able to bring it to market. However, since the 1970s, when they were in peak power, as opposed to the 2000s, where the government has significantly weakened the power of these tobacco companies, they are handicapped in their action to respond to new disruptive technologies in their industry. They couldn't run more ads. They couldn't increase their advertising spend or they couldn't use their supplies against these vaping companies. They would have been able to do all of that in the 1970s when they had peak power. This is a very important concept for you and me to understand. And I want to tie it into what we were talking about before. If we can understand what the impact of the regulation is to the businesses, then we can spot where their weak points might be. And these provide new opportunities to disrupt an industry. Now let's take a look at the history of Jules. Jules' founding story goes back to 2005, where Adam Bowen and James Monzies were doing a product design class at Stanford. They were two former cigarette smokers and they wanted to build a device that allowed them to smoke on campus without being judged. They created an e-cigarette device called Plume, which got renamed to the Pax Vaporizer, which was used to smoke loose leaf tobacco and cannabis. And they sold the company before founding Juul in 2015. 
In 2015, they built an e-cigarette using a disposable cartridge system. The product was marketed as an alternative to smoking with small amounts of nicotine. And the way that they differentiated the e-cigarette product to cigarettes is they play to their strengths. Cigarettes were really harsh. They smelt bad. They made your clothes smell bad. They irritated your throat. So they created a device which had less throat irritation and it didn't make your clothes stink. And they designed it like uh, an iPhone because their target market was tech millennials. They created a sleek aluminium body with a slide-in pod and paired it with flavors like mint, apple, and creme brulee. They introduced the product to market in 2015 and they did 2.2 million in sales. In 2016, they did 16.2 million in sales. And in 2017, they did 244 million in revenue after just three years of operating. By the end of 2018, they had a market share in the US of 76%. This is the investor's dream and what you would refer to as pure venture growth. They created the tagline called Dueling, which named the movement that they were creating. And they started to double down on this strategy. In 2018, they raised $650 million, giving it a valuation of $15 billion. Later in 2016, Altria One, one of the largest tobacco companies, purchased 35% of Juul, valuing the company at $38 billion. Juul, in 2018, was doing $2 billion in revenue. Where Juul innovated was in the distribution of their product. They went hard on social media, partnering with a number of influencers, and they copied the old marketing strategy of cigarette ads from the 1960s and 70s, which used attractive female models to pose with dual products. They used social media to target their tech millennials, but the problem with that was that Gen Z dominated platforms like Facebook and Instagram, and this led to an explosion of high school students vaping. Instead of pulling back out of this market, Jewel doubled down on this strategy and bought a number of different advertisements on educational gaming platforms, crafting platforms, and directed their advertisements at middle and high school students. The FDA started to come down on Jewel and ordered them to reduce some of the flavors that they were able to sell and banned them from advertising on social media. This significantly impacted the company. And in 2020, their market share fell from 76% to 42%. And in 2022, it was only 28% of the US market. This started the decline of Juul. There is some real questions about whether Juul still has a license to operate in America as the FDA has banned them from operating in the US. There is a lot of learnings that we can take away from the Juul story. The first is naming the movement that you are creating. So Juul used dueling to describe this new movement. And this was critical in creating a strong word of mouth marketing strategy, which is the best marketing strategy. They also knew who their target market was. Their target market was tech millennials originally. So they designed products that tech millennials like, which is Apple products. Another learning that we can take away from the Jill story is they copied the existing playbook that the tobacco companies used in the 1970s, which was using attractive female models to pose with cigarettes. Jill applied this to Instagram and it worked just as well as it did in the 1970s. This is something for us to learn and understand and we need to be studying the history 
of our market that we are entering to see if there is an existing playbook out there that has been used by someone or that has been tried by someone because the chances are that it still works today. Now we're going to take a look at a different company called Relix. So Relix was founded in 2018 by Kate Wang. Kate Wang has a finance degree out of a Chinese university and then went and completed an MBA from Columbia University in New York. After her MBA, she went and worked for Bain & Company before working at Didi Chuxing and then Uber in China. Wang is an illustration of keeping your eyes open. In 2017, e-cigarettes were everywhere in the US, but they were still a rare sight in China. I'm going to explain a graph that I'm looking at. In China, there was 0.5% of 308 million people using vapes. In the US, there were 34 million smokers and 32% of them used vapes. And in the UK, there were 7 million smokers and 50.4% of them smoked vapes. She saw the growth of the market overseas in the US and in other countries, but not in China. And China had the biggest population of smokers. Wang started the company off the back of that realization, realizing that vapes were growing everywhere except China. Guys, this is why we study these markets and what this podcast is about. If we see high growth markets in other countries, there is no reason why it cannot grow at the same rate, if not more, in our country. And we need to seize those opportunities. That is a textbook definition of spotting opportunity. Now we're going to look at how this can translate into creating a massive company. And I'm going to read you some of the sales growth of Relax. They launched in 2018, and by the end of 2018, they did 19 million US dollars in sales. By 2020, they were doing 585 million dollars in sales, which is fucking crazy. And at the time, they only had 2% of China's 308 million people using the product. Their gross operating margins is 44%, which is insane. Relix's selling point was a sleek, easy-to-use vape with a handful of flavors. They also started going online. That was their main distribution strategy. However, the Chinese government cracked down on that, banning all online sales of vaping products. They pivoted into creating storefronts, and now they are up to about 5,000 different storefronts in 250 cities They also installed ID and facial recognition software to prevent minors from being able to buy vapes at these outlets. In China, the tobacco industry is controlled by the CCP and the regulators are not sure whether they want to classify the Relix company as part of the tobacco industry. If they do, then it will obviously fall under the control of the CCP, which would be a shame, but I guess that's how it works in China. As we come to a close in studying the e-cigarette market, I want to share some of my key takeaways from this market. And I want to first start off by reading you a quote regarding the impact of technological change written by Ashwath Demandaran, who has an article called AIs, Winners, Losers, and Wannabes, an NVIDIA valuation with an AI boost. It is indisputable that in each revolutionary change of the last four decades, has created winners within the space. But few caveats have also emerged. The first is that these changes have given rise to businesses where there are few big winners, with few companies dominating the space. And we have seen this paradigm play out in software, online commerce, smartphones, and social media. 
The second is that the early leaders in these businesses have often fallen to the wayside and not become the big winners. For investors, the lesson has to be that investing in revolutionary change ahead of others in the market does not translate into high returns. If you back the wrong players in the race, or more importantly, if you miss the big winners. This is certainly the case for Jewel. Look at all the investors that invested in that company. Jewel created the vaping market. They looked to be the early winner in the market. They attracted investors like Fidelity and Tiger Capital, and they had 76% market share, and they still lost the market. I think what is most important for us to understand is that when we see a high growth market and we see another company operating in that market, we should not get discouraged because they might not win. We have to have faith in our execution ability and our judgment that we are going to be successful. The second thing to know is as we see these trends pop up like NFTs or AI, whatever it might be, we need to be paying attention as to where the money is flowing because this might allow us to recognize the companies that are potentially undervalued that might end up becoming the big winners. The other key learning from this market is whatever gets banished by the old gets reinvented by the new. With breakthrough products, particularly products that are addictive and can be easily abused by consumers, the companies that create these products tend to abuse their power significantly, so much that the government has to come in and regulate the industry to protect the consumers. The consumers involved in the infancy of this market are usually significantly negatively affected, and they pass on these learnings to their friends, their family, and most importantly, their children. Take smoking as an example. Gen Z have been beaten to death about how bad smoking is. We've been educated at school about how bad smoking is. Until Juul creates a new product, frames it in a slightly different way, and innovates in the distribution of the product. Stop and think about how crazy this is. Every single person that smokes a vape knows how bad it is, yet they all still do it. The craziest thing about this, if you go back and look at the Juul ads, they literally have copied the old cigarette advertisements and they are still effective. This is an example of human nature repeating itself. The strategy of reframing the product you are creating by coining a term and innovating in the distribution of the product is so effective that Jewel was able to get more people smoking than any other tobacco company in the last 50 years. Another example of what gets banished by the old gets reinvented by the new is credit cards. Gen Z has seen our parents misuse credit cards. Therefore, our generation has been very cautious about getting a credit card because they have seen our parents misuse them and get into a large amount of debt without understanding the repayment terms. This wasn't until Afterpay reframed what credit was by creating Buy Now, Pay Later. They engineered the perception that it wasn't like a traditional credit card and they innovated in the distribution of the product. This product absolutely ripped with Generation Z and the millennials, and it created one of the biggest tech acquisitions in Australia. This works, right? Perhaps the same thing might be happening to social media right now. Most people that I know think social media is a massive negative. They think that it causes you to compare your life to others, that it is responsible for lowering your self-esteem, that it creates anxiety. And we might educate our children about these dangers. 
until someone will reframe a new type of social media, innovate in the distribution, and it will catch on like wildfire, just as the previous examples did. We need to be looking at markets that have been created by the old, that we could innovate in the distribution and reframe the new product. And maybe it might just catch on. The other key area is market timing. And we've seen how in the 1970s, cigarette companies had too much power. You literally could not start a vaping product. The first e-cigarette was invented 96 years ago, but the vaping industry as we know it has only been around for eight years. This shows us that the ideas of the past are still relevant today. And this is why you and me study these markets, because now we know this. We can go back in history and look at the ideas that have been overlooked and then look at how the regulation has impacted the current companies and where it has weakened them. And maybe our next business idea might have been sitting there in a document that was created 50 years ago, but now is the right time to bring it to market. So let's finish where we started. What industries does the government think is a bad idea right now? This is already happening today with technology companies in Europe, and we are seeing this in Australia happening in oil and gas and in coal. The government is making it very difficult to start new coal projects, making it very expensive. The other thing is they are raising the royalty rates paid to the states, making it more expensive for smaller companies to operate. So I don't need to spell this out, but we can already see what's happening here. The smaller companies are not going to be able to deal with this regulatory pressure because the cost of doing business is going to go too high. Then the large coal companies like Glencore are going to buy these coal assets for an absolute steal. The more that they buy, the more of the coal supply that they will control, which means that they will be able to influence the supply of coal to the market and they can use that to increase the price of coal, which means they're going to make loads of money. So for us, we need to be understanding how this is happening and what companies are going to capitalize on this opportunity. Because if we can invest in these companies, we stand the opportunity to make a lot of money. That is all for the episode, guys. If you like this podcast, please could you share it with just one person. If you'd like to ask me a question or you have any feedback for me, I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the show notes. That contains some of my key ideas from the episode, as well as some other random thoughts that I've been working on, which you might like to hear. All right, until next time, see ya.